You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are in the book of Daniel. This is our fourth week. We're in the end of chapter two. And as we are picking up from last week, we remember that Daniel has been given a death sentence. Daniel lives in the land of Babylon. He's exiled away from his true home in the southern kingdom of Judah. He is sentenced to death by a king named Babel or Nebuchadnezzar who is frustrated by his own council of wise men they aren't able to tell Dan, or to, to Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is and what the interpretation is. And so he decrees a death sentence on all the wise men in Babylon, including Daniel and his three friends. And so as those who were given the responsibility to go kill Daniel and his friends approach Daniel... Daniel acts with much prudence and wisdom. He, he diffuses the situation. He asks for an appointment with the king to do what he wishes, to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation. But here's the thing. Daniel doesn't know any of it. By faith, he believes that God will provide for him. And he does. He does provide. God brings to Daniel a vision in the night after Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, spend time in prayer. And so today, we are going to read about that dream, what that dream means, and what it means for us. Daniel has acted faithfully in every turn here in Babylon. And he, in to, to some degree, has acted faithfully to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar in his time in exile. Yet, his faithfulness has not produced the sort of repercussions or, or, or reciprocated uh, repercussions from the world. Daniel has acted righteously with integrity and honor, humble and wise, yet the world has not returned to him in any degree what he has sowed into it. He is kidnapped, right? Taken away from his home. He's forced into the Babylonian training program that is set to indoctrinate him to change the way that he thinks, to change the way that he lives, to change the one that he worships. And then after all of that, here in chapter two, we learn that he's sentenced to death despite not doing a single thing. And so this is hardly a ringing endorsement for the idea of karma, that you get what you deserve. Daniel does not get what he deserves in the world. Yet despite how he is treated, Daniel, in his time in Babylon, he thrives in captivity. Prosperity has been given to him by the hand of God. Daniel writes in this letter that God has given him wisdom, that God has given him favor, that God has given him understanding, that God has given him protection amongst the conniving world. Daniel is resolved in his belief that God is his only hope in life and death. He believes that no matter what the circumstances in his life, that God is in it and his plans will not be stopped. He trusts God implicitly. And we will see that again as Daniel reports to Nebuchadnezzar 
that everything that he has worked to acquire in this world by his own power and manipulation will come to ruin. But Daniel will be faithful to God. Without knowledge of what this bloodthirsty king will do, Daniel will speak the truth to the king. So let's pray and we'll walk into our text. Lord, we come to you today that, and we believe that you are holy, 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 Lord. That you are majestic, that you are powerful and unchanging, that you are true and you are good, no matter what our comprehension might be here on the world. Those things are true of us, of you. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you use this time to bring your word to life. Holy Spirit, will you bring these words to life that they will be used for conviction and encouragement in our life. And Lord, let us be humble as we enter your text. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this through your beautiful and wonderful name. Amen. This is Daniel 2, verse 31, all the way to 45. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together broken in pieces became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule them over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you, to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces all and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, it shall be divided a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in these days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold." A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, 
and its interpretation is sure. And so this is the dream. And we remember that Nebuchadnezzar was sent into a tizzy after having this dream. It's a prophetic dream about the future given to Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation given to Daniel. But we remember that God has given both the dream and its interpretation for his glory. And so in this dream, we see a statue, a giant statue divided into four parts made of varying types of materials that will eventually be demolished by a stone cut, not by the hands of humans. And so for Nebuchadnezzar, this would have a vision of of things to come. This would have been prophetic in the future. But for us today, many of these things have already happened. Much of this is history, not all of it, though. Uh, The overview of all of this is is this, that there is a, a number of successive kingdoms that are to come after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and they will be inferior to his kingdom because in the end, the kingdoms of man will fail. They will be crushed by a stone, not cut by a human hand, a divine stone sent by God himself. And what that means, and we'll get into this later, is that God's kingdom will prevail over all the kingdoms of man in the end. It is certain and it is sure, as Daniel says. Now, whether this prophetic dream is going on today or it is in the past is a matter of debate. I lean that it is still ongoing today. What I would like to do is to take some time to identify what the theologians and the scholars believe these four kingdoms to be. And then at the end, I want to note for us what is most important. Now, Daniel begins this interpretation by telling Nebuchadnezzar of seemingly his good fortune that the, the Babylonian empire will be the jewel of all subsequent empires. Nebuchadnezzar and his empire are the golden head, Neo-Babylon. They are the golden head. The king is given a word that as long as he is alive, his empire will thrive in the land. Now, this could be a bit of good news to Nebuchadnezzar, but it might be unnerving to hear that everything that you worked for in this world would come to an end. I mean, imagine being somebody who started a large corporation that began and then became the envy of Wall Street. And then you hear in your life that that entity that you built painstakingly would eventually crumble and come to an end. That is what Nebuchadnezzar hears. After Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon will come three inferior kingdoms. Now, as I said, this is a future version. This is prophetic to to Nebuchadnezzar at the time, but there is consensus on what people believe these kingdoms to be. And what we find in this interpretation or this dream of Daniel is is an unbelievable accuracy uh, amongst God's vision. Babylon is eventually captured by the empire of Persia in 539 BC. The Persians, prior to conquering Babylon, had absorbed and subjected uh, an entire empire called the Median Empire. Now, the Medes and the Persians are very closely related. So, if you look at your history books, you'll often read of the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire 
was overtaken by the Greeks in 331 BC. They would have been under the reign of a man named Alexander the Great, one who you won't only read about in your Bible, but one that you'll read about in your history book. And we'll read more about him as we go through Daniel. Greece is well acquainted with prolific works of bronze. In fact, the Bronze Age begins in the Grecian Empire. But the empire of Greece lasts in that day for about 200 years when one comes that is like iron to capture them. The Roman Empire is the legs or are the legs made of iron. They are truly maybe the only empire that conquered the world in their day or the world that was known in their day and they truly were iron because they crushed all things. In fact, the Roman Empire coincides with the Iron Age. Now, eventually, the Roman Empire splits into two kingdoms, a divided kingdom. You have the Eastern Roman Empire that has its capital in Rome. And then you have the Western Roman Empire, which is also known as the Byzantine Empire that has its capital in Constantinople. Now, there are some who believe that the silver is strictly the Medes, that the bronze is the Persian Empire, and that the iron and clay is simply the Greeks. Uh, those are differing opinions, but the mo majority of experts believe that these four ki kingdoms are as we have them written. Now, Daniel gets us to the bottom of the statue. And at the bottom of the statue, we see feet and toes. And he mentions the idea of clay and iron being mixed, meaning that it's strong but brittle. Iron with clay creates a very weak foundation. Now, there are some that insist that these feet and these toes uh, imply a fifth kingdom that is to come, one that comes after the iron legs, ones that comes after the Roman Empire, where the Antichrist will come out of. It is a kingdom where clay and iron will be mixed together in marriage, ultimately resulting in its greater weaknesses. And what that means is that they're united in marriage. It's, it's their political marriages, where nations will unite with each other in symbolic marriage, or political leaders and those of the ruling class will marry others in the ruling class in other nations to maintain or enhance their own power. That is what it means by mixing together, but ultimately it will leave them in disunity and weaker. Now, some say that these toes represent Europe. Some have said that these 10 toes represent a 10-nation conglomerate of world powers in the future. While others say that there is no fifth kingdom, but it's a continuation of the Roman Empire in the future. That there will be, in the future, a rise of a neo-Roman Empire. Neo meaning new. That there will be a new Roman Empire in this world. Now, it's interesting, the Babylons are the Neo-Babylon Empire. Uh, they are that because they existed in a former state starting in 1700 BC. They regained the new momentum, new power with the rise of Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, in the 6th century BC. And so it's not uncommon for kingdoms to rise and fall and then eventually for them to rise again. 
But we also have to take note to understand that the modern world is very heavily influenced by the Roman culture. And so it's not out of the question that the kingdom in the future, that there's a kingdom in the future that rules like iron, that will be like the Roman civilization in its operation, probably without the sandals and the funny hats, right? It'd be different. So there are quite a few ways to understand this dream. But it's good that we understand this dream knowing that our scripture is grounded in history. There is good reasons to believe what is said in the Bible based solely on its historicity. But ultimately, it doesn't matter who or what these kingdoms are or what these materials represent. Sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees in the area of prophecy. We can get so concerned about the small, minute details of what is happening that we lose the most important lesson to be heard. And one of the most important ideas for us to remember is simply this, is that all the kingdoms of man are in a state of degradation, that they are in decline, that the kingdom of man will fail, and that they will eventually be crushed by the stone. And there is great hope for us in understanding what the stone is, because the stone is the kingdom of God. It is an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed, one without end, a kingdom ruled by God and not himself. And so look, this is good news for us, because we spend a lot of our might in this day fighting in the political world about governments and leaders of the world. But we are reminded in this scripture that God is sovereign, that he is the one that rises up kings and kingdoms, and he is the one that removes kings and kingdoms. It doesn't mean that we should be apathetic and not vote for things that are of the Bible and values are of the Bible. But it means to us that our hope is not in this world. My heart already grieves the election that faces us in 2024. I don't know if your heart grieves the way that mine does, but we have to remind ourselves that it is God that is sovereign in this world, that he is where our hope lies. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in a president or in any worldly leader. Our hope is in God. And the kingdom of God that will come from the stone will be completed through the Son, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the stone. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 21. Jesus says this, verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, and he is speaking it of himself. 
that he is the stone the builders rejected, the cornerstone of all civilization, and he will be the stone that crushes all who stand in his way. This means that at the end of time, Jesus will come again to judge the earth and set up his everlasting kingdom where a great mountain of believers will fill the earth. And so look, as believers, we can toil in this world. We will struggle in this world. We will lose our hope in this world at times. But we are given a glorious promise here that in the end, God's victory is sure. What a great encouragement this would have been to Daniel that despite his kidnapping, despite being away from home, despite the death sentence on his life, that he knew that God was in control and that he would be victorious. What a firm foundation of truth for hope and courage for Daniel in this day. Jesus reminds us that anyone who hears my words and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. King David says in one of his Psalms in Psalm 40, in verses one through three, he says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth and the song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Where the kingdom of man is a kingdom of degradation, of decline, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of renewal and redemption because we are a people of faith who have their feet firmly planted on the rock, the cornerstone, Christ. For the world, it is recorded that their feet are like the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Their feet will be the source of folly and frustration and weakness they, because they will fight over power and status in the world, their feet will lead them in the way of the wicked and unrighteousness. But for those who trust in the Lord, our feet are planted on the truth. It is a truth that will renew us from the inside out and redeem us. It will be the truth that makes wise our paths and brings the redemption to our life and righteousness in the world for the Lord's name's sake. We are not the people of the world. We are the people of the truth who are set their feet on a firm foundation that is everlasting and eternal. And so how does Nebuchadnezzar take this interpretation? And what does he say to it? Well, let's pick it up here in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then, David, then king, the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief per, per, perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And so what I want you to notice here 
is who does Nebuchadnezzar bow to? Who does he bow to? Is it God or is it Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar celebrates man. He offers up incense to Daniel. He gives him great rewards. And then he goes on to praise God with his lips. Now, it is a good thing that we see a pagan king turn his praise to God. But that is not the lesson for us in this today. Daniel has been clear from the inception that this has always been about God, that God has been the source that has provided for him understanding and this interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar bows to Daniel and he gives lip service to God. The inauthenticity of Nebuchadnezzar's confession to God will be understand in greater amounts as we enter into chapter three, as he becomes again impressed with himself and demands the people of Babylon to worship him. Daniel reminds himself or reminds us that God is sovereign, that we have a God who is all-knowing and never-changing and ever-present. He is the God that sets up kingdoms and kings and removes them. Let us remember the words that Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar himself in verse 36. He says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And so this seems to be a bit of courage for Daniel, that in facing a king who has proven himself to be unhinged in his judgments and his decision, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that everything that he thinks that is his, his power, his prestige, and his position is not by his own doing, but it was given to him by the true God of heaven. Daniel is unafraid of saying what is true, regardless of its repercussions. It is a truth that Nebuchadnezzar will fail to notice in this moment, but is one that we must reckon with here today, that nothing happens outside the knowledge of God, and nothing happens outside his sovereign control. Listen, that understanding is the difference between giving God praise with our lips when we should bow our knee and declare him Lord. Nebuchadnezzar believes that he is the authority in his life, but he is thankful for God's intervention that he's provided for him. Friends, God is the authority of our life. He is Lord. He doesn't want our lip service. He wants our worship. He wants our life. Jesus says, if we believe in him, we must die to ourselves. Not because God wants to control us or manipulate us, but because he wants the best for us. And in him, God, in God is life and light and abundance. Living with God in relationship with God is what we were made for. It is the source of our rest in this world that is full of degradation. Daniel does something interesting here at the end. He actually gives away his reward to his friends. Daniel is given authority over the province of Babylon. But here he requests that this position is given to his friend Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, or their Babylonians named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel does something interesting here. I think it's something to note. Let's think about what we've seen in Daniel so far. He, he's in exile, away from his true home. He's captive and humiliated in a land that isn't 
him, his. He's humiliated by the ways of Babylon, yet he has acted righteously and blamelessly. And in chapter 2, we see him react to the wrath of a king who pronounces a death sentence on all of his people, or on all his wise men, I should say. Daniel moves in despair, not only himself, but all who were set to endure Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, even though they were be a people that hate Daniel. And here at the end of chapter 2, we see Daniel settling the wrath of the king. He makes peace between Nebuchadnezzar and man through this dream. And to whom does Daniel give the rewards of his faithfulness? To his friends. So what? So that Daniel can remain with the king to counsel and intercede on behalf of his people. Listen, Daniel not only gloriously proclaims that the end, at the end of all times, our sovereign Lord will be victorious over the kingdom of man through the stone that is Christ. But Daniel edifies and typifies Jesus and who he will be. Daniel points us to Christ who lived a life we could never live, to die a death that he did not deserve, to give to us all the benefits and rewards that were rightfully his. He who knew no sin became sin. He, Christ, absorbs all the wrath that God has for sin so that we, as a gift, might become the righteousness of God. We all benefit from Christ's work on earth. And we see the same thing here in Daniel. His friends get all the benefits of his righteous work on earth. This is the goodness of God that points us that from the beginning, it was always going to be about Jesus. All of the Old Testament points us to the person and the work of Christ. The question for us today is, are you his friend? Do you believe in him? Or do you merely give him lip service? Do you bow your knee and declare him Lord? Or do you praise him when things are good in your life? Our God is the sovereign God of the universe. And he rewards those who seek after him. We'll visit that idea as we jump into chapter 3 next week. And we'll define what that idea of reward is. But for today, let us commune around the table of God Let us celebrate what he has done for us in communion. It is because of that risen Christ that we can join here together as a community of broken but hopeful believers who seek to love what he loved, to live as he lived, to do as he taught, to be faithful servants in this, our time and place. And so in this meal, we remember Jesus. We remember his promises. We remember the price that he paid, what he said, and what he did. On the night before Jesus' death, he took the loaf of bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup, and he poured it out, saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. And so today, we do remember him. Remember his life, remember his love, his friendship, his teaching, his dying, and his rising to life again. And in this meal, we make a shared proclamation as the people of God, that Christ has come, that Christ has died, 
that Christ is risen and that Christ will come again. Now, I forgot to put our slide up here today. And so will you share it with me in that profession by repeating after me that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That is our proclamation as the people of God. The body of Christ represented by the bread is the bread of life. The lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing represented by the Jews. These are the, the juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people. And we're grateful for these gifts. And so in this moment, we, we ask you to take a few moments to, to, to look at your heart. Look, the Bible is very clear that we should be careful about taking communion. That we would seek to forgive and, and apologize to those that we have wronged and sinned against. That we would make right our sins before coming to the table. So as we sit here in a moment of silence, as, as music plays, let us make our hearts right. Let's ask for forgiveness for, from God in the areas that we've fallen short. And we remind you, parents in here, that you are the chief disciples of your family. If you have children in here, it is your call when they participate in the area of communion. And so let us spend some time in prayer. and then.